0: We are live. It has been a while. I'm I'm Andrew Schaefer. And uh, it's been a few days since I did any Cloud Native After Dark. And I, I got uh, I got a thing where I, I thought maybe I should do this during the day. And and so I'm starting to talk to people during the day. So this is gonna be cloud native in the light instead of after dark. And you know, if you haven't seen any of these, there's some other ones, you can go watch them, obviously. We're trying to talk about the the trends that are happening across the industry with technology, with, with process, with tools about how people are building and delivering, you know, software for for their organizations. And, and today I'm joined uh, by a by a very special guest that has uh, recently uh, released a book. He's author of a book, so I'll let him introduce himself and he can tell you a little bit about himself. And then we're going to talk about uh, this book, uh, Continuous Architecture. So with that, oh, the other thing, I'm not I'm not going to butcher his name too badly. He just explained to me the 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 notion of the French U and the French R. But but I'm not going to tell you his last name. He'll can tell you. So Pierre, just introduce yourself, and then we'll we'll talk a bit about the the ideas that you've captured in in the work that you're doing. Thank
1: you, Andrew. Thank you for the introduction. So uh, this is new for me, and uh, my name is Pierre Purer, and uh, the Purer is very hard to pronounce for an American speaker. My wife who is American cannot say it, so it's, uh, I'm used to it. So I'm a chief architect at Travelers. And the reason why uh, we're talking today, and this is totally new experience for me, reason why we're talking today is, as Andrew mentioned, I just published a book on something that we call continuous architecture. And the theme of that book is really, in today's world, what we do as architects, especially enterprise architects, tend to be anachronistic. Uh, there is actually a joke, I don't know if you know it, Andrew, but uh, people ask, what's the difference between a terrorist and an architect? And the answer, of course, is you can negotiate with terrorists. And
0: that tells you what the way people see us. So the book is really about- not- I, think, I think that's a theme across the enterprise, right? I've heard the same uh, joke with respect to security and, and yeah. uh, you know, other, other things that are kind of institutionalized to resist change inside the organization.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, but, but especially uh, if you look back at what happened with Agile. And Agile, when you know, I was doing some research for the book, Agile really was started around 1995. So nobody can say that Agile is new anymore. You know, the first book that came out, Ken back published his book on, on XP, 1995. Uh, that's, a, or not, that's a long time ago. That's 20 years ago, right? 21 years ago. And uh, so, what strikes me is architects are really not involved in the movement. For a period of time, they just ignore agile. Okay, that was just something that was going to come and go, well, it didn't go, it didn't pass. Okay? And what's happening now is especially with what you call a cloud, which is that platform, which is more and more getting more and more important to us, architects just don't know what to do. So the book is really about, really, what do you do? as an
0: architect when you're faced with agile cloud and you know, DevOps and all those great things so before we dive into the book and there's there's some principles and things that we're going to kind of cover that are in the book but the the definition of architect or architecture across the industry doesn't it doesn't always seem like it's very it's not used in the same thing so often i find when people talking about architecture it's worth kind of resetting the vocabulary and, and kind of de- defining the terms that we're going to use, right? So w- when you think about architecture or when you think about architects in, in the framing that you're using in your own work and in, in this book, what does that word actually mean to you?
1: Yeah. So uh, ar- architect by itself is a very misleading word. That's a great, actually a great question. This is a very misleading word. What people do usually they try to put a qualifier in front of architects they will describe themselves, I'm a, an application architect. I am an infrastructure architect. I am a security architect. Sometimes, nowadays, you, you hear actually I'm a cloud architect. What it really means is I'm someone who's going to take a long view. And it doesn't matter which domain you take that view on. It's really about, I'm going to take a long view. I'm going to try to do a little beyond what I'm doing day to day. And I'm going to try to see where this thing is leading me. So the, one, one of the hard comparison in this is really try to compare what we do as architects to what I call real architects. Take a building architect or a naval architect, okay? It's really a hard comparison because building architecture has centuries and centuries of knowledge. You know, people are not gonna build a building without knowing exactly what they're doing. You, you have basically patterns, patterns were actually invented by the building architects. You have patterns, you have standards, you don't build a building, just you don't design. You really, it's it's all about really a lot of knowledge that you apply. Computer architecture is not that simple. We have about at this point 40 years, if you end well, 40 years of knowledge, which is nothing, okay? And now if you talk about cloud architecture and what do we have in cloud architecture, maybe five to 10 years of knowledge, if we are being generous. So, which is really, even less than nothing. So, how do you apply this to what you do day to day? That's really that's really one of the issues.
0: All right. Well, with that, why don't we just dive into the the six principles? And it, it might be useful for you know, especially people who are coming from both sides of this the the enterprise architecture side and from you know the more what I would consider kind of like the new cloud native side for you to to. to talk about how these six principles are, are a deviation or an evolution of the, the classical uh, enterprise architecture to what you see as sort of this new paradigm that, that you're kind of advocating in your book. So if you want to, I think you had a slide. You could, you could throw it up. I was It was from a presentation you were showing me earlier. But this, this walkthrough of the six principles, I think, is a nice place to start uh, to kind of frame the rest of the conversation. Absolutely. Do you see the slide at all? Uh, yeah, I see. I, I can see your screen now. So if you just share the, if you share the, or, or present, put it in presenter mode. There you go. Yep.
1: Yeah, perfect. So the, the way we organized this book was really, we tried, we tried very much to you know, come up with one more methodology. I think the, the, the last thing the world need needs right now is one more architecture methodology. There are plenty of that, and they are not really successful.
0: That That's the theme that you, you came up over and over in our conversation is, this is not a methodology. No. It's
1: it's very, really, think of it as really a set of tools organized around six principles. And the principles are fairly simple. As you can see on the screen, I mean, number one, we are really, we try to, to basically tell people that architects tend to work on a project basis. Again, Andrew, another definition of, of architecture is there are really two kinds of architects, those which are, solution architects that really work professional project and the enterprise architects, which are supposed to architect at the enterprise level. Well, the challenge with that is solution architects tend to be very tactical, while enterprise architects tend to be very, very generic. And we go back to the joke of, of enterprise anything. But neither of those definitions are very satisfactory. What we are, what we are saying is don't think just project, try to think of the product. Try to think of your stakeholders, try to think of who's going to actually use what you're doing. And I think that's a very, very important thing. That's that's actually something that I was very happy when, when I started working. At, we, we, we did a couple of projects with Pirotol Labs, and I was very happy to see that you guys had the same philosophy as we do, which is to try to don't look at projects, look at, pro, look, look at products, and organize your products in product lines. So that's the, the concept of really think product, not project, is critical for me. So-
0: I'm sorry. Yeah, just just for the. I mean, I, I I live in this world, so I think sometimes when we when we talk, we don't always give the the people that aren't in the same circles as us the the right framing. So maybe just a tiny bit more. Like, what do you see? What's the difference between a product versus a project for someone who's kind of coming into this fresh? Like, what what do you mean? It's different to think about a product versus a project.
1: So the way. The way I think of it, Andrew, is, is actually very simple. If I'm a project manager, OK, what I'm going to probably be worried about is my compliance to plans and budget. So I'm going to be very focused on the, inter- the internals of what I'm working on. I'm going to make sure that I deliver on time. I'm going to make sure that I deliver on budget. Well, that's great until you realize that people do not like what I'm delivering, which is a big problem. Okay. Uh, but To me, what the beauty of focusing on product is it's not that I don't, I don't care about time. I certainly care about time. It's not that I don't care about budget. I care about budget. But my first focus is going to be on how the system is being
0: used. It's going to be on people who are actually consuming that product. It's a different mindset. I think one of the things I see as a big difference is that uh, a project ends where where a product has has this life that might be you know way way into the horizon if not forever like i'm not just trying to get through the list of things on my gantt chart or whatever you know however you're planning that so i can say that it's done i'm trying to get in a continuous cycle of feedback with my users something that optimize the the value that i'm able to provide for them in in a way that i have a relationship that allows me to, to to build my business
1: I think that's an excellent point, because at this point, also thinking of product allows us to think in terms of minimum viable product, which is, I think, a very, very useful concept. And you see, uh, as I I keep on talking, we also start start to think of minimum viable architecture, the architecture that it takes to basically deliver that minimum viable product. The reason why I think a minimum viable product is very important is because architects, will try to get to, to some kind of requirements, and that's normal, okay? And requirements, and you see in in, uh, in uh, principle two, requirements usually fall in two categories, the functional, and what some people call the non-functional, I'm not crazy about the term, so I usually use uh, quality attributes, which is the same thing. So the staff, which is not the, the functional, here's the issue that we all have. In order to collect requirements, and, and collecting requirements, is something we all need to do so in order to collect requirements we're going to have to go and talk to some human beings well to issue that issue number one is that most of the time we don't get to talk to the end user we we get to talk to some proxy that's going to interpret what people who want to use the system actually are going to do Well, now you have a translation of really requirements. So the translation is as good as the translator, most of the time, it's not going to be very good. So first thing is you start collecting those requirements, and they are not really very good. But number two, even if you could get to the person that's actually going to use the system, you get into the next problem, which is the way the human mind works. It's really hard for people to explain what they want until they actually see it. So people try to guess. Sometimes they guess right. Most of the time they guess wrong. So you end up with, you know, this is, this is another cliche, right? The, the old Victorian novel, the large requirement book that really people try to code to. And really, they get to nowhere because, number one, it takes a long time to code. So by the time you finish, you probably out. Your, what you're coding is probably half obsolete anyway. And number two, you're coding something that you never, don't even know that people want in the first place. Well, if you think product is, especially if you put minimum viable product, the idea is to put something in front of your customers. And I, I use the keyword, also product forces you to finish up with customers. So if you put something in front of a the customer then people are going to react to. And of course, the challenge at this point is you need a closed loop. you you'd be able to react quickly. But the whole idea is to have an which is driven by feedback.
0: Yeah, I like to frame everything in terms of a, a hypothesis that I'm testing. That yes. I have some some value that I believe I can create for a certain uh, persona, and I want to I want to validate that against their their behaviors and their choices. So Absolutely. if we so are, did we already start talking about the second principle or is yes. that yes?
1: So so what we did is we moved to the first principle, which was you know if you just said the first principle, we went into the requirements and and the requirements and the concept of MVP. So the second principle says, you know, you can focus on your functional of your functional requirements, but a blob of software will probably fulfill your functional requirements. In order to have an efficient piece of software, you really need to think about your quality attributes, things like performance, things like scalability, and on and on and on. So,
0: so here's a question for you, and this is something that I see people wrestle with across a bunch of different projects. How do you take the the notion of quality, and and or do you connect that back to anything that can be quantified or measured? Well, I think I think sometimes there's a, you know, this is a, a double-edged sword. But you 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 need sometimes I think to quantify things in order so that you can actually tie it back to something that's real. Yes. Yes. And in in terms of, so so the so the the.
1: And you you see the little uh, image. What we're doing is we actually, each quality attribute, and it's not illustrated on on this slide, but basically it's decomposed into a scenario. So for example, if I take uh, performance, which is an easy one to explain. Performance, I'm probably gonna look at response time, for example, and I'm gonna give a scenario in this context, okay? I expect the system to behave the following way, and I'm gonna quantify this. So each of my quality attributes,
0: it's going to be quantified with one of several scenarios. So, so, how would you how do you extend that? And this is one thing that uh, comes up in lots of conversations. Uh, you have a couple on there like portability and interoperability. Like, how how do you, looking at a system or or the architecture, tie that back to the notion of interoperability? So, you that's why you,
1: you, those words are words at the end of the day, and they they, they by themselves your definition of roof, of interoperability may be different from mine. So, but well,
0: and my and my, you know, not to belabor the um, the the wording, but my requirements for interoperability might be different. Right. So, so that's why it's very important to actually give some
1: uh, some concrete scenarios. What do I mean by interoperability? What is the context? What I mean, I mean actually interoperability. And what am I trying to achieve?
0: Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and I think. I mean, the the overarching theme. Of what I try to get people to do is is focus on the holistic why this thing is supposed to exist, and not just checking off the boxes of of the requirements. Exactly, exactly.
1: And I, that I mean, requirements by themselves, you know, I, I personally believe that requirements are not very interesting because they, they tend, as I said, really they, they are very subjective. We would have to think that even quality attributes are objective well maybe they are but they are not always terribly objective so it's nice to actually be able to anchor them in some kind of scenarios that are quantified
0: absolutely so then let's go let's go to the third principle which is about uh delaying the decisions
1: absolutely so the the whole architects so this is, this is almost a occupational occupational hazard of architecture. Architects love to make decisions. That's what architecture is very often about, and they love, love to make decisions upfront, based on well, sometimes facts, sometimes they don't have facts. They make like guesses. We back back to my example of uh, if I'm going to start architecting a system for I, I don't know. I'm going to come and see you, Andrew, and how many people do you, do you think the system is going to be used by? And you're going to tell me tell me ten thousand. It's going to be a fairly popular mobile system, you know, have 10,000 users. And uh, I said, hmm, if I know who says 10,000, I better be careful here because you know, this could be very popular. So let's let's, let's try to architect for 20,000. Well, guess what? The system may be a flop and I may get a grand total of 500 users on it. In the meantime, I've been architecting this grandiose system and I have maybe provisioned a lot of infrastructure, perhaps not, but perhaps I have, for not a lot of value. So it's all about trying to really manage value. Okay, I should not invest a lot until I really can can get some value out of what I'm investing.
0: I I the way I frame this and personally is there's there's few things more expensive in software than building the wrong thing. Exactly. And, and the more I can de-risk the you know the the project and and align the effort I'm gonna put into building up infrastructure and deploying the rest of this stuff with some actual usage pattern from an, a real customer, then then the better off I'm gonna be. Absolutely, absolutely. And this,
1: this goes back to project versus products. You know, project managers are usually very happy when they hit their plan and a budget. Well, if you deliver the wrong thing, does it really matter? Probably not. And the corollary to that is nobody will remember how you know if you were a week or two weeks late they' a product if a product delays your customer however if you are on time on budget but you totally miss the mark people will remember that one it's uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an interesting thing so so uh, so delay you know delay your decisions until you actually know the facts is important and then the number four is really about trying to architect for change But change will happen there is no way around that you know it's Totally, totally crazy to think that I'm going to create that big design up from that bar thing, and uh, things, things are going to be great. You know, the way things happen, the, things have a bind of their own, and so change should really be part of design. It's very important, and the best way I know of to actually try to handle change is to design small, and you know what we call now you now these macro services. Macro services actually great. Invention. I mean, um, I was uh, I had I was lucky enough to attend a session by Josh Long uh, a couple of weeks ago, and of course, Josh is amazing when he when he did. But he also came up with some interesting points on macro services, more than just to show the, the way the way he codes and so forth. But the way some of what he said was really really uh, very very uh, you know insightful. Actually, if I can just take you to that slide very quickly. Hopefully, I won't mess up. Uh, being, I could have a hidden slide for obvious reasons, right? The, my, my uh, the thought on microservices, but many people really feel microservices as just a REST API. This is just you know, this is just a service with REST API. It's much more than like that. Uh, many people also think about microservices are just. It has to do with code base, the, the size of code base. Well, not really. Okay. Macro services do increase velocity at the price of complexity. I think that's a very important point we all need to make. Yes, you're going to create velocity for your macro services and you're going to be resistant to change, but your system is going to be a little bit more complex. So all these things really need to be taken into account. And the last point on that slide, which I got directly from Josh, was, to me, it was very insightful. They are all about choreography as opposed to orchestration. No? So the so architecture was all about a very smart orchestrator and some very dumb services below the orchestrator. What we're thinking now is, well, what if the services have some core intelligence and can actually choreograph themselves and coexist and really create what I think of as value? Makes sense. Absolutely. So back to okay.
0: I, I think, and this this is a. Uh... You know, not to steal your thunder, but uh, you have the three things that you think you, or 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 you think people need to be successful, and one of them was was this notion of a platform. And Mm -hmm. I want to come back to six principles, but I I think this is this is something that I've been. I I think I think people don't understand the the cost, the true fixed cost of deployment in many of their organizations, and if you want to go to these models of continuous delivery and microservices, then continuous delivery is going to increase the the frequency that you do deployments. And and the microservices architecture is going to increase the number of deployments that you have to do to change the system. So you could change any one part of the system with the deployment of that microservice. But in order to change the whole system, there's much more deployments in both time and space. So if you don't have the tooling and the process and the culture to drive the fixed cost of deployment in both in, in both terms of time, uh, people, resources, whatever, down to near zero, then adding these continuous delivery models and these microservice models is going to increase your cost uh, by whatever the factor of, of that fixed cost of, of each deployment is.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's exactly the point. <laughs> Because that's, that's danger of, the danger of principle four is that we architect for change, so we go into smaller, smaller things which are totally loosely coupled, which is a good thing. And also, one, one, uh, one insight I got from Josh was I, I tended to think of loose, uh, loose coupling based on process, and certainly we can think of it that way. But there are a lot of other things that couple that, that our, our software. Database is one of them. Okay. Sharing a large database is probably not a good idea. And we are thinking more and more about, well, no, the data should really be decentralized. The price we're paying, that's what principle five kicks into, into play. The price we're paying, as you say, exactly, Andrew, as you said, now you need mechanisms to actually deploy all these things. Now we have complexity. How do we handle the complexity? So we have to architect for build, which we do usually, but test and deploy as well. How do we test all these myriad of microservices and how do you deploy them? that's I think that, that's a key question if,
0: I mean to me to me and I, I borrow from uh, you know other people's ideas but this is a quote from the the guys that uh, designed Erlang, which is if you if you don't experiment before you put something into production then production is always an experiment and to me that that cycle that architectural cycle is all about doing whatever experiments you need and that in some ways that's what I like that's the way I think about testing is I'm doing, I'm, I'm validating the hypothesis that this code works before it ever gets to, to the production system.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the last principle has really nothing to do with technology, which is interesting. Okay. It's about a law that we, that's again, that's not something new. Um, the, the, the person who came up with, uh, with this law, you heard of him, of course, Mel Conway and Mel Conway came up, with that law, I don't think he knew he was coming of the law, but it was more a statement he made a conference. And there, there are a couple of ways that this principle basically works. This becomes principle, a principle. And basically, the, the simple way of thinking of it is the organization of your teams, the organization of the company you work with, will eventually drive the design of your systems. And you know, I was thinking about that one day, and you know, I was thinking with travelers, right? And Travellers, we have a lot We have a lot of command and, con- command and control designs. And it just do, it kind of dawn on me that basically that's a reflection of our organization. We are a very command and control organization. So if you really want a totally distributed system, you're probably going to have to organize yourself as distributed teams, which is easier to say than done. Because so far, everything I've been talking about was fairly simple. Now we're talking about changing culture which is probably the hardest thing that we
0: can try to do. The, the social engineering is, is always harder than the, the technology.
1: Absolutely.
0: The, I, I, I've used Conway's law in presentations for years, and the mm-hmm. original formulation or statement he made is that organizations will build systems that mirror the communication structure of the organization. And and so I think this is a general, you know, trend that people are realizing, and you know, more and more people are making explicit is that you can actually get better systems if you more explicitly design the communication patterns of the of the humans involved.
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. One one great way to drive uh, system design is to, as you said, to basically design correction patterns. It's it's absolutely incredible. The same way as you know, one one thing that uh, I didn't believe it actually until I was exposed to it. One of the surest way to slow a project down is negativity. All it takes is one negative person on the team, and you see your your productivity just crashes to the floor. It's fantastic. So sure. it's it's, uh, it's amazing how the way we organize, the way we work, eventually drives what we produce.
0: Absolutely. So I have I have a lot of questions. How how much time can you spend? The rest of the um, I can I can spend as much time as you want. That's that's you know, no hurry. So what, one of the things I'm I'm uh, interested in seeing how you think about this. You know, with your background, is when when you look at the the types of things that you need to change in an architecture. Not all of those are created equal, and, and you kind of hinted at this. But at the top of this, you have the application logic, uh, which you can, you know, feasibly and, and people do uh, deploy many times a day. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and then as you go down the stack and you get to things that are more more physical, you you're not going to be doing. You're not going to continuously deploy your your storage arrays. You're not going to continuously deploy. You know, your core network and a bunch of these other things. And those are becoming a little bit more software defined, software enabled, but there's still what I consider this difference in the cadence or, or the time scales that you're going to be able to accomplish change at, at, at these different layers of the stack. And, and i just wondered, you know, in your, in your book or in your practice, you know, how much have you kind of explicitly thought about that, those different uh, cadences and time scales across the both, both across and, and vertically in, in the stack. Actually, that, that's that's actually a great a great point, because if you
1: think about the way people are trying to, to, to present, you get into, into bimodal IT or multi-speed IT and things like this. People really believe that you can have some system of engagement, to your front-end systems, that presumably can change very quickly. And you can have your system record, which, you know, system record is dangerous. People don't want to touch them too often. So you, you want to make sure that you don't really mess around with them too often. And some system insight, which is your really your, your BI systems. It's a nice model, but unfortunately it doesn't work too well. The reason why it doesn't work too well is how can you guarantee that I'm, I'm going to change my systems of engagement without that change is not going to have a domino effect on my system at all. So let's say I'm going to be able to deploy very quickly on my system of engagement. And say so I can deploy several times a day, as you say. But in order for my deployment to be successful, I have to make a change to my financial system, for example. And the guys on the financial system are going to say, sorry, Pierre, okay, we have a regular deployment schedule, and the next time we deploy, is three months from now. What do I do? So I think that the whole point of continuous deployment is to be pervasive throughout the whole enterprise. You can't just have one place where you
0: deploy continuously, and then AWS, yes, which is back. Well, so so there's, I mean, some of it just has to do with physics, right? Like if you're dealing with physical systems, there there's a there's a time constraint on how fast you can you can put storage arrays into the data center and you know provision these things and and then you know from there you have on top of that the file system that has the database that has the thing and and so each one of those layers has has different windows. Uh, of, or, or cadences um, that, that make sense to change it but I think that if you're looking at the the notion of microservices and decoupling part of the idea is to minimize the the or the connections between these different parts of the system that require uh, you know these cascading changes uh, across and and you know both both horizontally and vertically in the stack in order to do changes so if you look at something, uh, you know the, the the big examples where people are doing continuous deployment with microservice architectures and they're you know they're doing deployments every day you know every 10 minutes every second or whatever at some of these places that they, they can't do that if they're required to coordinate across a team right that has to be self-service uh, facilitated by the platform, API driven all, all the changes that need to be made are controlled by that two pizza team yes.
1: The famous two-pizza team, which, is, which, by the way, I still haven't found out whether the term was invented at Amazon or uh, I, I went to Amazon last year and they actually claimed they invented the term, and then I heard someone else saying it was a Facebook term. So I will ne- probably never. Know wh- wh- which term? Uh, two pizza, two-pizza team. Uh,
0: I believe the common uh, lore is that is it's is an Amazon thing. It oh, okay. pre- uh, pre- pre- predates the uh, the Facebook. But it's commonly it's commonly used as a as an analogy. Got it.
1: But uh, the the interesting thing that I didn't quite realize initially, the two pizzas are supposed to feed the complete team. So it has to be not only the developers, because initially, you know, I was thinking of developers only, and I say, well, you know, you can actually get a fairly you know, hefty team of developers fed by two pizzas. So you know, that sounds like your know, macro services are not too small, but once you add the DBAs. The DevOps people, you know, and so on and so forth. The, the Ops people, and so on and so forth. Well, then you start getting a better feeling for the side team. Interesting. And what? So, I mean,
0: there's there's lots of fascinating um, conversations to have here in the in the context of the of the team that you need to deliver. And you just sort of, you know, hinted on some of these personas. But you you might have databases. You 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 know you have systems. Uh, you have application developers in that, in that two pizza team, you know, what, what personas are you going to involve? And it seems that, you know, going back to the, you know, my own career and my own experience, people are going away from the, the notion where all these teams are strict silos. And Mm -hmm. it also, it also connects back to your principles that the, the product teams are, are coming together with, with elements of each of those. So they might, in, in in the org structure, uh, still have some hierarchy up through that that uh, practice with each of those responsibilities, but for the purpose of a product, they're they're considered a single team with with all those different capabilities as part of a single team.
1: Yes, and, and actually that, that brings us to another point, which I'm starting now exploring, which is uh, kind of the same way as we are more and more decentralizing, back, back to Conway's principle, right? The same way as we decentralizing more and more the work. We are, we are really working. And microservices are a great way to do that because microservices lend themselves to small distributed teams. Maybe the function of architecture should be decentralized as well. Instead of having the big central, you know, chief architect at the, at the, at the, at the top of, of uh, their their ivory tower, okay? Maybe it's a function which is much more
0: decentralized than we think. So then, then you get into the... Um the notion of like eventually consistent architecture where where the you know, architecture might not even be the same across uh, parts of the organization as they all are learning uh, different things exactly because one one another point we make in the book which is
1: not an obvious one is when when my co-writer uh, Morat and myself start thinking about that book and we say well continuous architecture is of course in uh, you know along the dimension of time obvious right so so we understand you know, but there's another dimension to this which is scale we really need to be able to scale up and down the function of the architect not the number of people but the function itself absolutely so the function to different people you no, know, the same way as more and more we see a continuum between the architect and the coder you know my uh, you saw probably one of my tweets where say i will I will probably never hire anybody in my team anymore who can kind of code because and that's you know, it was hard enough to find
0: Yeah, we 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 had this uh, discussion a little bit earlier where I made the comment that I would make them be on call as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Then they understand the point of uh, basically policing robust software. That's that's you know the first time you get that call at two o'clock in the morning, then you're gonna pay attention.
0: Changes your behavior.
1: Oh, absolutely. You wanna write the test before you write the code, but I think that it's very important for architects. To be closer and closer to code. It's, it's interesting because at some point, the pendulum, the pendulum has swung from the architects. You know, most architects started their, their, their careers as developers, designers, and it swung into, oh, you know, this was the old days. I do not want to see code ever again. To now, it's going back to, you know what, we're going to have to go back to code because it's really, very really strange to actually start having an architecture discussion and not to end it up with a line of
0: code. Oh, so like or, or something PowerPoint. that something that starts to prove the hypothesis right you have to if, if you just leave everything in powerpoints then you don't it never becomes real like you're leaving you're kind of abdicating responsibility to other other parties to make that real right and
1: and uh, you know one, one of the chapters of the book begins with what I call architecture validation which is oh this is this used to be the domain of enterprise architects, and you know, we you come to see us and we have those questionnaires, and you know, God forbid that we, we let you in if you don't pass all the questions. Well, it's not what it is anymore now, it's much more physical. Uh, we an example I gave, which actually came from Deutsche Bank, was they have a giant Lego Lego game, and they actually represent the architecture using Lego pieces.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: and and the next level down is once you actually Kind of visualize the architecture, you actually write pieces of, of it, and sometimes we have these debates between architects. The only way we can actually solve those debates is actually by writing that, of
0: course, prove it with code. Yeah, prove it with the code. I feel like we laid the foundation for a number of conversations that we should have that will each be another hour. Okay, now I, I think there's a lot of different directions to go with this, and, and as it connects to the you know each of these responsibilities, and, and the the timelines, the the cultural aspects, the technical aspects. We didn't we didn't even really get into the the platform discussion or or the architecture of the application framework yet. Uh, so, I think I want to give you a chance to give like kind of some parting words of wisdom. Uh, tell people about how to get your book if they're interested in in learning more about this. and then uh, we should probably plan to talk again in in uh, a few weeks to a month and and see where things are evolving.
1: I would love to absolutely love to. So Parting words, you know this is not a theoretical book. This is about things that we live through. I mean we started uh, my my co-writer and I started this about ten years ago, but it or not, and we we started writing something and we stopped. And we restarted it recently. We started about two years ago. And of course, 10 years ago, the book would have been very, very different. It would have been more about, you know, we, the, st- the stage we're at was more of a classical architecture. Now, the book that we created is much more, you know, down to modern technologies. So, my, you know, what my, my, I would encourage you to really, you know, get a copy of the book, of course, but, you know, take a look and, uh, you know, you may find a few things that, may surprise you, may actually open your eyes to a different way of thinking. And that's really what we're trying to do.
0: It's all about the it's thinking.
1: About, it's a way of thinking. It's,
0: it's all about thinking differently about what we do. Well, it's been a pleasure. I think that there's, like I said, I, I'm just having more more questions and comments that I, I'd love to have a, you know, more, more specific, deep, deep uh, dive on a bunch of the aspects of what you guys are thinking about and 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 see how it aligns with the things I've experienced and I've been thinking about as well but with that I think that I'd like to thank everyone for uh spending this time with us as uh, it's, it's a good uh 40 minutes now and I think we covered some ground and like I said I don't know if we answered all the questions but but hopefully we can help people get some some better questions
1: thank you thank you very thank much. you
0: Pierre we'll do it again